This is a Vantage House production. Hi folks, welcome back. I'm Jalen. Today is November 18th, and if it's Friday, then this is the Delve. On Tuesday, November 15th, a farm in Poland, five miles from the Ukrainian border, was hit by a missile that killed two people. This marked the first time a NATO member state was directly hit since the outbreak of the war. Here's a clip from ITV News explaining the situation. Polish police officers conducting a follow-up search after a missile strike that at first looked worryingly like the opening salvo in a wider war, but which tonight appears to have been a cruel accident instead. An investigation into this incident is ongoing, and we need to await its outcome. But we have no indication that this was the result of a deliberate attack. And we have no indication that Russia is preparing offensive military actions against NATO. The evidence on the ground here in Poland suggests the explosion was caused by a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile that went astray. The Polish president has been on camera saying there was absolutely nothing to indicate that it was an intentional Russian attack on his country. This incident could have escalated into a more significant conflict between Russia and NATO, up to and including threats of nuclear weapons. We got very lucky this time, but who knows if we will be this lucky if another incident occurs. Right before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, no one in the world would have thought the use of nuclear weapons would be a reality, much less an ever-present concern at a global level. To most people, nuclear weapons were associated with the distant past of World War II and the Cold War. But with recent events, the fears of nuclear weapons are very real. Even President Biden stated privately that the global tensions surrounding nuclear escalation have not been this high since the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. To discuss all things nukes, I spoke with Thomas Vogt. Tom recently departed from his role as executive director from the International Institute for Justice and the Rule of Law, an organization dedicated to providing governments with the necessary information to combat terrorism and other transnational threats. Previously, Tom was one of many U.S. State Department representatives at multiple international gatherings with NATO and the United Nations. In 2010, Tom received the Secretary's Award for Excellence in International Security Affairs, one of the highest honors awarded by the U.S. State Department. Tom graduated from West Point and served in the Army Corps of Engineers, as a Russian foreign area officer. A lot of what we speak about today is about multilateralism. And this is about the process of organizing nations around an idea. So whether it's NATO or the United Nations, or even adversaries such as the United States and Russia, I think 
the interchange of ideas is a good thing, and so does Tom. And we'll take a listen now. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Delve. Uh, how's it going? It's going well. I just got back to the United States after two back-to-back assignments overseas, oh. first in Vienna, Austria, at the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe, and then at the International Institute for Justice and the Rule of Law in Valletta, Malta. And I'm happy to be back here on a snowy day outside of Chicago. <laughs> Welcome back to the States. I, I want to jump right in. And we don't, I suppose we don't have a lot about what just happened in Poland, but from what you're hearing, what just happened in Poland? Was this an accident? Are we on the precipice of nuclear war? <laughs> okay, great. Um, thanks for that. I think that uh, the news today is quite topical, and uh, I anticipated you might bring this up in the call. And so I went and made sure I was following the latest. It appears that the feedback from all the parties concerned is that it was I don't know if an accident would be the right word, but uh, it was a air defense missile shot from a Ukraine launcher. And I have no specific information to verify that or not. But you could see the leader statements that came out of the, uh, the summit where many of the people are at right now. They had a consultation last night to tone down. The, of course, the initial reaction did this missile come from from the Russian side, because that's been a topic that people in my sphere have been following what's the what are the results of the situation in and around ukraine right now would it spill over into other nations and of course a missile landing in poland gets everybody discussing the nato article 5 issues and an attack on one nato member is attack on another but it appears it was an unfortunate consequence of the ukraine air defense system and i i dialed into the nato press conference because I wanted to make sure I was topical on it and the NATO Secretary General noted that uh, it was not the fault of Ukraine, but it's a it's a reaction to the situation that's going in and around Ukraine with the, the Russian missile attacks that are coming. So what does that say from somebody that's had, uh, you know, from my perspective, I've had a, a foot both in the military, had a military career, and then as a diplomat, the worst case scenario is when you have conflict that can't be resolved through peaceful negotiations. And the military is always fond of saying that the, the best battle plan uh, doesn't continue to follow it once you make first contact. And so now we're suffering the consequences of what is often an unpredictable situation. And I think we uh, we can see now that it'll, it'll unify the discussion even more about the need to stay together, I think, as we figure out how to move forward in a very difficult situation as we head into the winter. Right. We were talking in the production meeting right before this call about, um, I said uh, in the meeting, one of the things that we got to see is a preview of if Russia had attacked Poland. We saw you know, Ukraine be pretty animated about it. Poland was, I suppose rightfully so, uh, a little upset about what happened. And we saw NATO really come together, have these consultations and really try to chill down the atmosphere and not be really ballistic. Not only did we get a preview of that, but Russia got a preview of that. 
what do you think this is this uh, like a signal what signal does this send to russia i think that the solidarity of nato is probably the most simple signal that it sends but i would take a step back and you know why i got interested in your delft podcast and the discussion is that uh, about a year and a half two years ago i mean i was approached by one of my colleagues to contribute a chapter with some other people to a book on security in the post-pandemic world. And we all contributed to this actually at the beginning of the pandemic. My chapter was devoted to the need for a resurgence of multilateralism. And, you know, I think the signal that uh, you can say good or bad about your opinion on current governments, the current administration in the United States, but the pandemic raised a discussion about how important multilateral cooperation is across all avenues. It helps address and tone down potential misunderstandings between governments. And so I think uh, the signal that's sent is there may be some, I wouldn't say fraying, but you know, I followed the news the last, you know, there's a few mixed signals now. It's been going on for nine months, I think, but it doesn't take much such as a couple of missiles. I, I don't know if it was a couple or one that fell in Poland, to once again bring all of NATO back together to restate its common purpose and its common solidarity, which is what good multilateralism speaks of. And that was really what, as both a military officer and as a, a diplomat, really caused me great concern at the end of 2020 as we were going into the election. We were destroying step by step the multilateral structures that were basically the basis since the post Cold War era. Now, I have the un somewhat unique position. I mean, I, I worked in an international organization and my direct boss was a Russian. We got along great. Uh, that's what happens when you work on international staffs. You have to do that to, to move the organization forward. But multilateralism has to also recognize both sides of the, of the situation and both sides of the discussion. And some of the effects that are happening right now were clearly already in the works in 2014 when Crimea was annexed. And it literally brought the Organization for Security and Cooperation to Europe, which is really one of the last regional organizations that had a good dialogue going with what one would say the former Soviet Union countries and the West. I tend to not like those kind of divisions, but it put a lot of closure to effective multilateral engagement. And now we've got basically Russia and somewhat Belarus support and then a couple other countries it appears either discreetly or openly supporting it. But the steadfastness of multilateral engagement is the precursor to hopefully getting us to an off-ramp for this conflict, which has gone on much longer than maybe was anticipated by many. But it does not appear to have an off-ramp right now uh, from my perspective personally but I also don't know the highest levels of negotiations that are going on, but it causes me great concern. Yeah, I think a thing that causes a little bit of concern is the talk around Russia potentially using a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. And I feel when we talk about nukes, it just sounds scary. But can you tell us, I guess, what's the difference between a tactical nuclear weapon and the ones that the U.S. Uh, used in Japan? Ah, well, I can talk pretty good about the tactical nuclear weapons. I mean, I would categorize the weapons that were used in Japan, which a long time ago, but 
no less tragic example of what the potential catastrophe of nuclear weapons are. I've been to Japan myself many times, but I would categorize Japan as a strategic nuclear weapon delivered by airplane back then. I mean, I think your listeners, if they're not aware, I mean, most countries have a strategic nuclear deterrence with intercontinental ballistic missiles, perhaps submarine launch intercontinental ballistic missiles or land-based. And those are meant really to cross borders and goes all the way back to, you know, some of the scary discussions about MAD, they called it mutually assured destruction. I took up my international relations and Russian degree focused on the disposal of tactical nuclear weapons. So what are tactical nuclear weapons? I mean, a tactical weapon is a low yield, and let's not confuse low yield with saying it's any less dangerous. Uh It's just, you know, the burst may be anywhere from one to five kilometers or or something like that, but it, it leaves tremendous radiation effects, destroys lives, property. But the concept, well, whether we want to acknowledge it was a very good concept, was really back in the 50s and 60s, and, and a little bit past that, they had things called atomic demolition munitions. I mean, if you had to blow up a large bridge crossing the Rhine back when we were defending against the Warsaw Pact, you could put a small tactical nuclear weapon down, would bring down a fairly large bridge. They were small enough that they could, in theory, be carried in a backpack. And it was seen by nuclear planners as a kind of a surgical way to use this new weapon. Of course, I think the international community in the in the 60s, 70s, and 80s um, realized that the whole idea of using nuclear weapons was was really uh, anathema to the kind of peaceful coexistence people would want. However, there are stockpiles of these. I personally don't have any figures that I can give to your listeners, but uh, I took interest in the 1990s with the idea of what do we do with something that's that is potentially easier to get access to. Now, I think that the the idea was tactical nuclear weapons should be an idea of grave concern because could one of these smaller devices be taken from its storage area or from where it was, somehow get into the hands of a terrorist and be used? I think the record shows over the last 15 to 20 years, uh, despite a lot of concern about terrorists getting their hands on a nuclear weapon, the technology, the know-how, and the ability to handle all that. It's a pretty complex set of things. So what did the international community do in the 90s and early 2000s? Well, it's a good example of what could have been and what maybe will be someday, but it's really difficult right now. But I mean, there was high-level cooperation between Western countries, primarily the United States and the former Soviet Union, i.e. Russia, to dispose of fissile material and get them out of some of these weapons. There were great efforts to have reduction in nuclear stockpiles. Um, it, in my opinion, and I did earlier part of my career before I went off to the OSCE, working on non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, chemical, nuclear, biological. It somewhat peaked, in my opinion, in the 2012 to 14 period. I don't know if your listeners recall, but there was a series of nuclear security summits by the Obama administration. Is this what we're talking about, kind of like the new start deal? Yeah, yeah, we wanted to get a new start. But by then, the Crimea invasion ha- or Crimean annexation happened, and the air and the goodwill to really do a lot of that has, I wouldn't say the right word is dissipated, but it's lessened. And uh, to, my last comment on this question is, is, what does this all mean? Well, 
maybe I'm, a, I'm an optimist, maybe that will we'll come out of this in real politics is that whenever there is an off ramp for the situation in Ukraine and around Ukraine, that it will cause a resurgence of the discussion of actual a reduction in nuclear stockpiles mm-hmm. because it's, it's clearly shown that the idea of even thinking about the use of a nuclear weapon until February of this year wasn't even on anybody's mind. Right. Maybe, maybe some people. I mean, there's a passionate group of people of which I was one of them. I still am, but it's not the main portfolio I have right now about nuclear nonproliferation. But maybe this will put some some fresh energy behind that we need to really have this discussion. But it takes uh, to not sound trite, but it takes two to tango. And if you can't have multilateral mechanisms that have all the sides that are involved in the party, you can't mm-hmm. negotiate to achieve actual reductions in nuclear stockpiles. And, you know, right now, there's only at the very highest levels communication going on between the Russian government and the United States, for example, and and having negotiated with the Russians for many, many years at the, at the mid to high level, they have to be at the table if you want to make any kind of agreement, but they also have to be at the table with a willingness to negotiate. And those two precursors are not there right now. So I think it's probably in good strategic thinking about how to go forward, but People now have got their minds around the unthinkable, which is would somebody actually in 2022 think that it's an acceptable thing to use a nuclear weapon, even if it's a low yield tactical to somehow achieve a political objective? I hope the answer is clearly no. If Russia did use a tactical nuke in, in Ukraine, would the U.S. respond militarily? You know, I have no crystal ball on that <laughs> yeah uh, the, the the question about whether there would be a response there would be some sort of response i think that you know the question is what is what do you mean by military response i mean would we retaliate with some sort of kinetic weapon i i that's that's really i think the debate that you're seeing right now with how we're handling the situation in ukraine we're arming and supplying the ukrainian government but there's tremendous strategic patience going on right now, which I personally think is correct to avoid escalating the involvement to adding additional parties to the conflict. It may seem a quick fix to get involved, but as I said before, the old military maxim is no battle plan survives first contact. And what happens after that? What do I do? I mean, I'm very interested. Four or five months ago, I was really pessimistic that this was really a viable option in some people's minds. I don't know who these people are, you know, but you, know, you saw the saber rattling that was going on and uh, it was to send a signal. It's continued on now. What I think is hopefully positive is that some of the countries that were wavering about maybe being neutral or not wanting to say take a position on this have also said this is unacceptable and there's more isolation on that. Uh, when I say more isolation on the on the role of the Russian government for this, but on the other hand, if you're a student of Russian history, which also is my personal interest in the background, governments are bound to do what they think is in their best interest. And you know, if you go back to the political culture of Russia and former Soviet Union, they withstood tremendous patience and attacks during the World War II, and they still use that as a rallying point around their sort of their thinking in the country. And so being isolated doesn't necessarily mean changing one's position quickly. 
but let me use that to launch uh, probably a question which I think I'd like to share with your listeners. Yeah. Is it why is Russia's military seemingly performing so poorly? so bad? <laughs> so bad. <laughs> yeah. So so this is another tremendous passion in my life. I mean, I started studying Russian as a cadet at West Point and continued on throughout my career in and out. I had tremendous fortune that I was a young officer in the Berlin Wall. So for those listeners out there who want to know how old I am, I'm not 25. Okay. <laughs> so I was flying in a Black Hawk helicopter the day the Berlin Wall fell with my company. And I was I was an officer, so I was talking to the troops and I was saying, this is the border that we're all protecting. And I always like to tell the story. I came back a couple days later to my uh, German village where I lived. Many of us lived off in the, we called it on the economy, not on base. And my landlady was a Polish refugee. I mean, she was living as a German now. She was breaking down in tears and she pulled me into her apartment, turned on the TV, and you saw the horde of people crossing from East wow. Germany to yeah. West Germany. And so quickly, the mission of the European forces of the US military changed. And and we had this era of good intentions, and it was it was actually quite exhilarating at the time. I I had my polishing done at the George C. Marshall Center in uh, southern Germany. It's an educational school that was set up. They were inviting Russian officers to attend. People from the former Soviet republics. We started doing uh, the, all this. They called it partnership for peace, military to military exchanges. I then went to uh, assignment in. Germany, and uh, we were in a training area for two weeks of all places. I mean, I, now I see it on the news every day in Lvov, Ukraine, which is the country to the far west of Ukraine, where, you know, sort of the people have tried to stay out of the yeah. closer artillery strikes. Huge training area in Russian Polygon. And we there was a Russian airborne unit training alongside with us. It was a simulated peacekeeping operation. I mean, that tells you where we were at 20 or 25 years ago. And we um, had exchanges by the early 2000s that had dissipated. And and now these military to military contacts have, have largely um, ceased completely. I'm, I'm, I'm almost sure of it, but I can't say I'm too in touch with that. But it was exciting. There was a, a sense of hope. And then but what I recall when I was then in the early 2000s, and I moved to the State Department as a diplomat, we were negotiating uh, things called the Open Skies Treaty. That's where we used to fly an airplane over each other, taking photographs to sort of get confidence and transparency. You know, the Trump administration pulled out of that. The Conventional Forces in Europe, CFE Treaty, that went into non-participation by the Russians. So eventually it collapsed under its own unwillingness to to do that, but that was basically to report your status of forces. What did you have in your country? And so this is a clear indication of absent cooperation, absent true partnership where you're exchanging information, then you start to lose an understanding and a context and a confidence in working together. And right now, there's clearly nobody working together uh, across those two sides of the coin anymore. And it really is, uh, it's to be seen whether this will ever be resurrected or will we be sort of at odds with each other on this. But there was a tremendous spirit of potential 
could we really work together? But my last point I wanted to make is what what does that mean about what did I see in the forces in Ukraine? I uh, I was so moved watching the way the Russian military worked in Lvov back then, where lieutenant colonels and colonels, those were pretty senior people, were directing the training activities because they didn't have non-commissioned officer corps that was well-structured within the way they were organized. In other words, they didn't have the sergeant or the first sergeant or the gunnery sergeant that said, soldier, pick up your rucksack and go do this work. They had conscripts. And then above the conscripts were the conscripts that were maybe there a little bit longer. And then officers were doing basically what we have sergeants doing. And there was a lot of money, as I understood, invested in upgrading the Russian military in the 2000s. But I don't think they ever fixed their problem with having a real functioning non-commissioned officer corps that could lead troops at the lower level. Because when you're out in the field and you're training, you're in contact, it's a far way from the command post to when you're in the trench with your sergeant to get directions and understand what the attack plan is. And so, I mean, they've really demonstrated that they don't have the training that we have in the West on how to really run a battlefield operation. And this is, on the one hand, surprising to me, given these were well-recognized deficiencies. And it was in the time of cooperation, the idea was to expose everybody in a little bit of a a transparent, we would say in arms control verification, trust but verify. But I'm not sure that any of these lessons learned were taken on board because it appears that they still got some of these same structural problems in their military. Uh, So I think time will tell what happens next. You know, we're heading into the winter and it's a different situation in the winter and it's grinding. The last thing I would say is it's grinding to what we often call it's a frozen conflict. And I don't mean frozen in the sense that it's winter, but just kind of frozen in time. It just, it just continues at a low level for potentially for years. I mean, you have these areas like Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, I believe, and Russia. I mean, this this is conflict's been going on for for decades, and so it's once once in, difficult to get out. Yeah, I want to talk about another frozen conflict. Uh, I want to talk about North Korea a little bit. Um, the Biden administration's nuclear posture review uh, it states that. Any nuclear attack by North Korea against the United States or its allies and partners is unacceptable and will result in the end of that regime. There is no scenario in which the Kim regime could employ nuclear weapons and survive. That's intense. (laughs) It's basically saying, I dare you to try us. Do you think that's kind of like the right move for the U.S. to be making or is it a little too escalatory? I wouldn't use the word excalatory, but I mean, I mm. think that it uh, it represents a well thought out, from my perspective, a well thought out approach to a country that we have had a very difficult time engaging in negotiations. I worked in the early 2000s on trying to come up with some sort of Northeast Asia security structure. There were a lot of people involved in this. It was loosely modeled after the organization security and cooperation in Europe, where they call them CSBMs, confidence and security building measures. 
and there was a lot of dialogue with South Korea, who tried to then get perhaps Japan and China, a few other, and of course, the six-party talks included China and Russia in this, not in this discussion about a, an alternative uh, security architecture, but you know, the frustration that I saw, and I wasn't directly involved in negotiations, was it was just difficult to get negotiation directly with Korea, North Korea, to make any concessions. And and you've seen the sort of episodic approach that North Korea has taken is when, when they want attention, they launch some missiles, they rattle the sabers some more. But I believe it's a very different context, which demands people that really understand the Asian sphere much more than I think we have a large group of people that are Eurasianists. You know, people know Europe, been there forever. Northeast Asian security is much more different. I think that the, the, the path of firm understanding of what the outcome would be of launching a nuclear weapon to North Korea is a smart message to be sent. I mean, if you've, if you've ever stood on the DMZ in between South Korea and North Korea, I mean, you're talking very short distances. This is not, this is not hundreds and hundreds of miles apart. So the consequences with the capital of Seoul so close, I mean, it would be devastating to, to this. Now it's, it's, a, it's a very modernized, built-up country. Um, and so I don't have any insight on what the thinking of the North Korean government is. I really hope that in addition to being able to focus on and they seem to be doing a good job of it, what's going on in and around Korea, that they can also, or in and around Ukraine, they can also continue to focus on this uh, situation because it's a really difficult area. What the last thing I would say is, you know, I mentioned the idea of a, nor a Northeast Asia security structure. I, I personally still think if there was effective multilateral cooperation among all the parties, it would have some benefits to have confidence and security building measures. But unfortunately, again, the preconditions are not there as well because, um, you know, the, all, all the players are not interested in this. And on the other hand, I would also say most people know NATO, they know the UN, but I mean, there is a plethora of regional security organizations around the world. And some are very well known. Some are not so well known. I mean, but if you make the decision to create another one, you got to have the resources, the staffing, the diplomats, uh, the military advisors to really make it effective. And, and yeah. sometimes, sometimes you have to realize that there's only so many resources that can be applied to this. And, you know, this is also the difference between countries that have very developed and large diplomatic corps in countries that sometimes have really, I know this from my work in anti-terrorism, some countries have two or three people, that's the office dealing with the whole issue of terrorism, where, you know, other countries may have 20, 30 people in a different agencies working on it. And it all depends on resources and priorities of the government and such like that. But yeah, it sounds easy sometimes to set these things up, but the, the budgets and the resourcing are really big issues. Right. Thomas, thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I, I, I can't say thank you enough. My pleasure. I hope to uh, stay in contact with you and I look forward to hearing the podcast. Thank you.